Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Vertnach and I'm Lloyd May of Houston. And we are here to talk to you about the censorship of films in Ireland starting in 1923. And 1923 is really the beginning of the whole censorship thing. So it's a bit like what I've been talking about in relation to publications, which is 1929. So this is the beginning of censorship in Ireland. We're really excited to talk about this actually because this is just such a charged moment in the history of censorship and culture in Ireland. But first of all, we want to talk about what is it that you could watch in the pictures in 1923 as the lads are discussing the censorship. Lloyd, do you know what they're watching? Um so, in terms of what people in Ireland are watching, it's slightly harder to recover, but if we look at the highest grossing films of 1923 at least according to US box office, it's a pretty good year for Paramount Pictures who have The 10 Commandments and The Covered Wagon. We then have Safety Last, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Scaramouche, Main Street and The Gold Diggers and finally Tiger Rose. So those are our big movies of the year. And I think The Covered Wagon is kind of around the summertime as well, so they are watching The Covered Wagon as they are debating censorship. Well, probably not the same people <laughs> as we will see a lot of people involved in this conversation frame themselves as avid cinema goers while simultaneously saying that they don't think cinema matters very much so <laughs> they may have been there i like the image of them in the doyle discussing the legislation or as civil servants drafting the legislation and then clocking off and going down to the picture house <laughs> and <laughs> sitting down in the dark to watch a film and that's actually one of the things we really have to talk about first isn't it the whole texture of film as a sensory experience and what it meant for people at that time yeah so in this period the cinema constitutes maybe a one pole in this kind of clash of popular cultures right you have the rural rugged outdoor masculinizing pursuit of gaelic games and all things that are racy of the soil and then you have this kind of metropolitan commercial materialistic anglicized and particularly americanized and secular sort of indoor activity and then also you've just got the cinema itself as like sensual space so in contrast to your drafty wooden floored creaky kind of tenement dwelling or rural cottage you've got these art deco or kind of modernist buildings with 
their plush carpets and unsupervised sort of dark spaces, which causes much consternation and, and concern. But yeah, it's they're also centrally heated, which makes them profoundly appealing. I can only imagine how amazing it must have been to sit in the warmth for a couple of hours when the place you lived in was Baltic cold. 100%. And also, I suppose, just the space of like leisure and dedicated leisure is quite an interesting one. We might listen to Gabriel Fallon, who is eventually to become a, a deputy film censor, who talks about what he describes as the temples of the new entertainment. Consider a visit to the cinema. The foot sinks comfortably into the carpeted floor as the usherette guides you carefully to your place. Your body relaxes in the ease of the well-sprung, generously padded seat of plush. The whole place is restful, soothing, somnolent. Worries vanish. Your attention is caught and held, carried along. The experience is pleasurable, attractive, fascinating, penetrative. I don't think he probably means it in quite that way. Uh, With your body off duty, it may be that your mind is off duty too. So, I mean... My lord. <laughs> doesn't doesn't sound like the body is off duty there, I have to say. No, especially if you're having a penetrative cinematic experience. Speaking of penetration, the number of cinemas in towns at this time is actually kind of astonishing. I hadn't really appreciated how long they had been established as well. A lot of them are in 1916, 1919. So... People are very familiar with these places. That metropolitan image that we have, obviously that's the huge cinemas in Dublin City and in Cork. But even in small towns, they are really quite common and they're very well frequented. So all of this sensual experience and this magnetic, transformative cinema going, I mean, that's just open to everyone. It's really a democratic medium. And everybody's going to the same films as well, because there isn't age certification in the way that we have today. So there are programs that are technically available to everybody. Although this is, of course, silent film, right? We have to remember that the talkies haven't come in yet. So articulate cinema, as it's described by by a correspondent in the Church of Ireland Gazette, which I actually really like. (laughs) That's brilliant. Articulate. It did help then if you could read, though, because with the silent film, you have titles that contribute to the visual, which is interesting. A whole other censorship question. Mm. And then, of course, there's all of the paraphernalia around the film. There's the film magazines. There's the publicity. There's the posters, trailers. There's just bucket loads of stuff associated with cinema. Absolutely. There's a kind of push to censor posters as well. There's a kind of discussion of even the sort of the film that someone could conjure in their mind to the kind of stimulus of a poster is potentially a worry, which is a kind of beautiful sort of meta censorship. So there's lots of ways in which the industry just reaches out its cultural tendrils into people's minds, which is the scary thing about it, according to people who dislike it. (laughs) which is why they sit down at the very beginning of the state. I mean, the state is only brand new. And one of the first things they decide to do is censor the films. Although, I mean, I I think to be fair to our 
illustrious forebears in this it's obviously this isn't kind of happening in in a vacuum either in ireland or or sort of elsewhere so this in the same sort of period we have the emergence of the bbfc which as many studies of this stress is not a censor per se but a kind of licensing authority and certificating authority but sets the standard in a variety of ways you also have the sort of emerging versions of what becomes the infamous hayes code right the film production code in the united states and they have a similar sort of licensing body to the bbfc so there's also, I suppose, a kind of meta level where we have to think about how, given that the majority of film is not indigenous to Ireland, instead it's the distribution of matter produced elsewhere, which is, again, one of the big concerns if you're a big Gaelic leaguer or Irish Ireland person. This commercial matter coming in from Britain and America is, is a problem. But you've also got material that's going to be sort of censored in advance in after the kind of introduction of the Hayes Code. In terms of the sort of road to censorship, like the Censorship Act, one of the things that it's principally sort of brought in to do is to rationalise the pretty sort of irrational system that precedes it. Essentially, by 1922-23, when this is being sort of mooted, Ireland has local government level censorship of varying completely sort of discontinuous kinds, broadly animated by the same concerns, but resulting in a system where film distributors don't really know what they can put out where. And so there's a call coming out, not just from the people we might expect in terms of kind of pearl clutchers and so on, but also just the film industry are kind of being like, better that this be spoken with one voice. So to some extent, there's a bureaucratic impulse of just tidying it up going on. Mm. And of course, centralisation, which is the big story of the Irish state, that we have one thing in Dublin and as it turns out, just one man in Dublin. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's really fascinating that it's the producers of film and the distributors who are like, look, can we just have a level playing field? So they are in favour of it as well, which, as you say, it's not the typical narrative. I suppose it's one of those moments where, realistically, the arguments for kind of free expression and so on will tend to be made by artists and especially with cinema renters and distributors. It's a purely commercial consideration, right? So this is a moment of, as you say, a kind of centralising bureaucracy operating in tandem with an increasingly sort of commercialized cultural space hand in hand capitalism (laughs) and bureaucracy happy bedfellows (laughs) as they so often are (laughs) but we're actually going to just go through some of the people who spoke in the parliamentary debates the parliament is doyle aaron so do you want to start off with someone who's for the censorship And someone who becomes quite kind of materially involved with it, who is Jenny Wise Parr, who who is one of the senators, who is at this stage a Common Gale senator, although she won't be for long. She she sort of breaks with Common Gale and goes independent not long after this. And so the bill is debated in the Dole and like a, a kind of framed and then sent on to the Senate at various points for sort of further discussion and ratification. And so, yeah, notwithstanding being a pretty politically radical figure, otherwise she's been intimately involved with groups like Ininian and Aaron, which is like Maud Gon's sort of feminist nationalist organization and so on. But she thinks the censorship is a good idea, not least because she's been practically involved with it in its previous unrationalized form. So she says, I've been a film censor for many years, and I know the difficulties appertaining to that office. In Dublin, 20 or 25 people make up the censor board, and these people, or many of them, have quite different standards as to what ought to be shown and what should not be shown. 
It was over that that great difficulties arose, and I think the appointing of one person whose standards will be fixed will obviate a great deal of the trouble in this matter. So for her, it's really like, this is a ball ache. <laughs> and having to hash this out with dozens of other people is not productive. It's almost as if categories like obscenity and morality are fluid and subjective and so who knew and yeah she talks about the difficulties of how things then disseminate through the rest of the country when a film was passed in dublin and it got as far as dunleary another committee would take it up and they would say what suited dublin would not suit dunleary and they cut it out again that went on all over ireland we also find that films that have been turned down 18 months or a couple of years ago came back again with another name, quite a different name from the original one, so that if the same censors who turned down the original did not see the other one, it might go through. So sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get the kind of classic hand-wringing, I think that the moral courage of the people of Ireland ought to prevent anything disagreeable from being shown on the screen, but our lack of moral courage is, I think, one of our vices. We are a people very touchy about morals and everything else. And apparently all these people who waited on the minister felt that our morals needed to be protected by the appointment of a censor. I hope they will be as well protected by him, if not better than in the past. But I do not think that anything would be equal to the moral courage of the people standing up against anything disagreeable shown on the screen. I love that blend of complaining about really boring committee meetings and grandstanding on morality. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> show me a censorship debate that isn't basically just all just that for for weeks at a time. We need a moment though to consider poor Jenny Wise Power on a committee with how many other people like. 12 to 20 uh, yeah, of them. She's saying like 20 to 25 people. And yeah, it's, I, I mean. It must have been grim. Can you imagine how long those me- those meetings went well, on This for? is one of the things that she also sort of talks about. Obviously, we, we, we talk about censorship in, in often quite high-minded terms in relation to kind of considerations of free expression and so on. But it, it's a practical endeavor. Also, she's interesting or a, a figure, I suppose, worth our while keeping track of just because she goes on to sit on the first appeals board. So she's appointed as part of the kind of apparatus of censorship that eventually emerges. So it's her and it's, that first appeals board is really interesting. It's her, W.B. Yeats, Oliver Gogarty. The idea of W.B. Yeats watching films is one of the strangest things I can imagine. <laughs> like that does not compute for me. W.B. Yeats watching films and trying to make notes on them and trying to define obscenity. I mean, that's just an amazing image. It's also interesting that there there are two women on that initial board. So it's, yeah, it's Jenny Wisepower and Moira Kennedy. My gut instinct is that that's probably not the new state making good on its commitment to favouring all the children of the nation equally or whatever. I think that's probably born of a, a perception that cinema is widely attended by children and that women will have a better insight into the, mm. the what is morally appropriate for the young and impressionable minds. And two women on a board is practically like a majority by the standards of the time. I mean, there's normally none at all, so it's quite yeah, an yeah. achievement. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the same period that sees women kept from, or will soon see women kept from appearing on juries because they might hear about divorce cases and so on. So you did Jenny Wise Power and I found another person who was for it and who's interesting stroke crackers and that is <laughs> Professor William McGuinness. And actually, I don't know if I mentioned Mr. McGuinness often in my censorship of publications podcasts, but he is just all over censoring books. He's 
in charge of the board in a period in the 40s. So he's a really powerful voice through this time period. And at this point in 1923, he's a member of the Doyle on the government side, which is common in Wales. So he's adopting the government position. Now, unlike perhaps the minister who puts forward the act, which is Kevin O'Higgins, he's not really the young revolutionary generation because he's born in 1867. And like Kevin O'Higgins, for contrast, is born in 1892. So there's a big age gap. McGuinness is actually, by the standards of the Doyle, actually one of the oldest members. The average age is 38. So they are, on average, a very young group of politicians. And McGuinness has been in favour of censorship for just yonks. He's been standing up talking about it and saying, down with this sort of thing, in front of various organisations. A lot of these lay Catholic organisations, such as the immortally named Catholic Truth Society, he speaks for them. So his support for censorship is longstanding. And he represents, I think, a very publicly pious end of lay Catholicism. I know the priests and the bishops are held up as the people running the Catholic cultural bandwagon. But I think people like McGuinness are the enforcers, really, on the ground. He's a member of the Knights of Columbanus, which is, if you're familiar with the Masons, is kind of like a Catholic version of the Masons. Very kind of posh, upper middle class dudes. And so he speaks in the Doyle about the censorship. And in some ways, he sounds quite like Jenny Weisbauer, <laughs> where he says, if the community were properly educated, there would be no necessity for a censorship. But we are not in an ideal community, very far from it. <laughs> and people, especially the rising generation, require to be protected from an environment that is certainly not conducive to good morals, and they require to be saved from themselves. And he just said it. <laughs> Yeah, we're saving them from themselves. We're saving them from themselves. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a very simple argument. It's so transparent. It's wonderful. But then what he said next, I just, I love this bit so much. (laughs) He says, are you going to allow the truth to be told about everything to everyone without qualification and at all times? Is there to be no reticence or no reserve? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like... William, what? (laughs) Is this an argument for the stiff upper lip? This sounds quite British to me. (laughs) He's also making a point that is a reasonable one, that audiences are diverse and that currently all cinema is available to all audiences. So there are no age categories, Mm. everything's general. So fair enough, you could say that there is tweaking needed in the system. Children's films should be for children. Adults' films should be for adults. So it's not mad but then he went on to even better himself when he talked he gave this mad doctor analogy (laughs) where he said that doctors are by virtue of their training and their mental constitutions able to go out into the filthy dirty slums and not catch disease which i think is a fundamental misunderstanding of contagion but we'll just leave (laughs) that aside so that for one type of mind or developed character, a thing is not immoral, which is highly immoral for another. So some of us can watch the films and we'll be fine. But some of you lot cannot watch the films. <laughs> but And, and it's it, I mean, this is something we talked about kind of 
at length with the kind of censor envisaged for the Censorship of Publications Act. If you follow the analogy there, he sort of says that someone who is extensively exposed to cinema becomes inoculated against it in such a way that they can't make a good censor. And and so we need someone who isn't immersed in cinema culture to do this. It's such a kind of... Yeah, we need someone who hates this and thinks it's bad so that we'll make sure we get everything, right? And ironically, he seems to be the only one who stands up and publicly says, I go to the pictures. I actually go regularly. In fact, it's the only hobby I have time for. And he even hilariously mentions a film he went to see, which he called diabolical in its naked indecency, (laughs) which (laughs) sounds great. (laughs) And it also, he noted, had crowded houses. So it was packed out. And it was called The Isle of Love, Mm. which is... It's a kind of a strange thing to explain, but it was actually originally made in 1920 under a title The Adventurous, but it was recut because two of the people who were in the original film, Rudolph Valentino and Virginia Rapp, ended up being wildly notorious. And so they just, they dug out the vault and they're like, these people are now famous. Let's recut the film, make their scenes really big, and then we'll reissue it and make money. So... That's what they and, do. I mean, Virginia Rapp specifically becomes a bit of a, a sort of touchstone that I'm, I, I think we'll find ourselves coming back to a few times. So she dies and, and becomes the kind of centre of the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. And so it becomes a byword for a certain kind of morally scandalous Hollywood lifestyle. The, the film also stars Julian Eltinger, who is a female impersonator. So there's, yeah, there's much for a man of McGinnis's mind <laughs> to potentially take issue with. He still went to see it, though. I mean, it can't have escaped his notice. Julia, Julian Eltinger was really quite well known in films and was really big in the American vaudeville scene. And he was advertised on the poster right next to a picture of Julian wearing female dress. So you kind of would have known what you were in for, William, at this point. <laughs> And of course, Rudolph Valentino was like the heartthrob of the day. So this film really contains a lot of of the problems that McGuinness has with Hollywood. But I like to imagine him as this scientist, as this doctor type, (laughs) collecting data in the cinema. He's just there for research. I mean, he's probably a daily communicant. So he's a daily cinema goer and a daily communicant. Love it. (laughs) He, like Jenny Wise Power, is important later because he's in the Film Censorship Appeals Board. So his opinions are important when the films are banned by the the censor himself. They're then appealed. So McGuinness, like Jenny Wise Power, has a say in the yes-no at stage two. But the best bit, after he finishes this wonderful speech, which goes on for some distance, the minister, Kevin O'Higgins, stands up to respond And he says that McGuinness has obviously made a great case for himself to be a film censor. Mm. And then in the worst burn on parliamentary records says, it will, of course, be difficult to find a man who combines unerring taste and enormous courage. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, but you're on the same side, Kevin. Why are you slagging this man off? (laughs) It's also one of the things that McGuinness is most sort of wary of he has a particular antipathy for films that seem sort of innocuous but that precisely by their innocuousness will kind of 
license all sorts of bad behavior. So he sort of says, if Eddie so-and-so and Mabel something else may do such things, and if it is not wrong in their case, why should it be wrong in ours? The whole idea of parental control, all that we associate with the sacredness, not merely of matrimony, but of the associations leading up to it, are sapped by those things. What he's talking about here is like romantic comedies. Yeah. Like, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Subtle romantic comedies as well, yeah. which is just unheard of. <laughs> so we're going to move on to the people who had questions. Those who were perhaps not so on board with the whole thing. And the first one I want to bring up is another deputy in the Doyle. And he's actually the official leader of the opposition. And he's a Labour Party TD called Mr. Thomas Ryder Johnson, which sounds really impressive. But he's actually born in Liverpool from a really working class family. So he's very traditional Labour in a British context, not just in an Irish one. And the reason he's the head of the opposition, I mean, this is the quirk of the beginning of the state, is that the main opposition parties are abstaining. Fianna Fáil, well, at this point, the Sinn Féin party under de Valera that then becomes Fianna Fáil, are abstaining because they disagree with the whole construction of the state, with the border, with all of the free state paraphernalia. So in order to express that, they do run for election, but they then refuse to take their seats. So all the Doyle has is a kind of a teeny tiny little rump opposition led by the Labour Party. And that's Mr. Johnson. So he's from Dublin. He's voted in by Dublin constituencies. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But he's really interesting because he has a kind of a technical objection. He just really pretty much says, yeah, it's fine. Obviously, we need censorship. And in fairness, most people do agree that something is needed. But he does that very technical work that is often done in a parliament where he says, I don't like this line. And he talks about a line in the draft where the censor would object to a film if it offended good morals or social order. And those two things are put together. And he's like, Social order. Why do we need to protect the social order? And if you think about it, a Labour Party person would 
would be concerned about the social order staying the same because they want a complete transformation of the relationship between the working class and the government. And he's really concerned that social order to some minds has a very narrow meaning. And pictures designed to subvert social order may simply mean pictures with a message which do not seem to fit in with the particular censor's view of certain property relations. And really, that's the nub. He's like, so you're saying that it has to reflect the current political status and we're not allowed to imagine change in the pictures in how things like political power and property are distributed. And he wants to take out social order and replace it with public morality, which you think is kind of also a little bit nebulous. Mm. But he does say that in the current constitution of the free state, public morality is actually referenced where the right to free expression of opinion is guaranteed for purposes not opposed to public morality. So he has a point. It already exists within the language of the state. And actually his intervention works at the very end by the time the the bill is turned into a law, a social order has vanished and public morality is in. So this is evidence that being an opposition party politician could work. You could actually change the law. And do you have anyone who's against? Did you find anyone or did you find someone who should have been against and uh, wasn't? Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say is it's, yeah, it was interesting doing digging around this in some of the maybe more usual places you might have expected to encounter resistance so obviously as anyone familiar with the censorship of publications act will know the irish times becomes this aggregate voice of protestant dissent but the irish times as far as i could dig out is fairly on board with this it shares that sense of like this is a pragmatic measure the system as it stands is is currently kind of incoherent and this is a necessary reform. So yeah, I kind of I wish I could come in with some spicy discourse, but <laughs> in the main, it's either fairly sort of neutral and factual reporting, or it's kind of actively lending its its support to what it sees as a pretty temperate and sensible measure. That being said, I did some rummaging around in the Church of Ireland Gazette to sort of see what the Protestant clergy were making of this, and. Yeah, you sort of oscillate between either there's some moral panic stuff, especially like in the midst of the First World War, there's this kind of cinemas slackening the morals that have already been loosened by war. And there's a lot of kind of hand-wringing about children. But, But there's also actually, to be fair, a pretty kind of moderate position taken on that. So in 1916, there's a sort of discussion of the child in cinema that responds to a long article from the Church Times about the influence of the cinema on children. And you do see all of these arguments being made, like, oh, it inspires imitative crime. It's causing all of this juvenile delinquency. The the juvenile delinquent is a kind of moral panic focal point in this moment. But, you know, you find the, the Church of Ireland Gazette sort of saying... In our childhood, it used to be the penny dreadful that was blamed for juvenile misdemeanor. Today, the cinema bears the blame. No doubt in both cases, some truth does lie in the charge. But our own experience with children has led us to believe that the cinema has a distinct educational value, provided it is not overdone. The writer of the article seems to think that the risk run by the operators, and occasionally perhaps by the actors, is bad for the children. But we question if this risk is as great as at a village circus. Or, like, this is 
no more dangerous, they say, than lion taming, <laughs> which have delighted the hearts of generations of children. There are some shrill voices raised. So there's a more from correspondence than from the publication itself. So there's a letter from someone who is an associate of the Mother's Union. Ooh, the Mother's Union are always good for a strong opinion. <laughs> so the BBFC has just been introduced in Britain. So she sort of says, while one is glad to know of the improvement in England, one deplores the continuance of the evil in this country and wishes for a strict censorship. Alas, there is worse than mere vulgarity to be seen in the Dublin cinemas. And we get this well-structured sort of tale about a case of moral depravity in a young woman. She had become hardened and had given up all religion. After considerable difficulty, I persuaded her to tell me what was dragging her down. She suddenly blurted out, It's bad pictures and bad books. <laughs> the latter were penny dreadfuls. The formers were films at different picture houses through which she and some companions had learnt evil. <laughs> She was like Oof. one bound down with chains. <laughs> I persuaded her to attend some mission services, and each time she seemed softened and anxious to reform, but each time some evil spirit seemed to have a hold on her and to drag her down, and back she went to the pictures <laughs> and her evil companions. <laughs> but we get the turn. However, in Holy Week, she came to some services. On Good Friday, she was at the beautiful lantern service, so I think kind of a magic lantern show in the, in the parochial hall. And as by the ocular demonstration of sin, she had become enslaved. So through that of the atonement for sin, the bonds were broken. Of her own accord, she renounced the picture houses and her bad companions. And not without lapses, strove to lead a better life. So... I did not know that the Church of Ireland was into demonic possession. I thought that was one of the things they were definitely <laughs> not into. <laughs> no, yeah, apparently the demon picture house can infiltrate its way. Again, there's also the irony that obviously this is someone who says, like, I go to the cinema all the time. <laughs> Even though it's evil and possesses your soul, yeah. I go regularly just to make sure that other people are keeping on the straight and narrow. <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing is the Church of Ireland Gazette, for whatever reason, hates Charlie Chaplin. It brings him oh. up almost any time there's a discussion of cinema charlie always with charlie in scare quotes is discussed i think the issue is i mean a charlie chaplin his romantic and sexual life is actually pretty skeezy like his his predilection for girls of, of 16 or waiting for people to turn 16 and so on is is something that that definitely bears scrutiny and he seems to have been a, a quite a tyrant to the woman he was involved with but I think the fact that he had divorced is one of the big issues. So hmm. Charlie Chaplin, as this adulatory sort of figure of identification for people, is something that, that much concerns our friends at the Church of Ireland Gazette. Well, I mean, the Catholic bishops are perhaps less inclined to say it does good and it does evil. They're more on the, it's a really, really bad idea all of the time. <laughs> sort of regardless. <laughs> and while well, you use the Church of Ireland Gazette, which is this magazine, how Catholic bishops speak to their flock, the most important one they do every year is the Lenten Pastoral, which is the bishop prepares an address which is read to all of the churches in his diocese. But this all reproduced in the newspapers. <laughs> There's a lot of bishops, by the way. So <laughs> there's a lot of pages <laughs> <laughs> and they do mostly reproduce them verbatim as well. The Cork Examiner is particularly assiduous. So it's just columns and columns. 
But in 1922, the pastorals, a number of the top bishops, spoke about the evils of dancing. And throughout the Catholic stuff, they talk about dancing, the bad books, the bad films, gambling, music. There's this kind of, they bring all of these amusements, as they call them, in together and they kind of put them in a pot and stir them. And they're like, all of these together, these are a diabolical recipe for corruption. What's this creation of a toxic stew of modernity? Mm. And the real objection I thought was quite amusing from the Bishop of Chewham in 1922, he really objects on the basis of modernity, on the newness, on the foreignness to Ireland of this medium. And he talks about, let us come back to Ireland of the old times and the old faith, the Ireland of boys who are strong because they are pure and girls who are beautiful because they are chaste. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Playing the greatest hits. (laughs) Yeah. And old faith, by the way, is in capitals. It goes without saying (laughs) because there is only one. (laughs) (laughs) And cinema, of course, it represents all of this new shininess. I mean, that's really what its attraction is for everybody watching it everywhere, is that it shows you the best and most glamorous side of a modern life. Everybody's wearing beautiful clothes, the most up-to-date hairstyles, dancing the newest fads. Well, this is the thing. It's not an Irish modernity that's being depicted. It's a modernity being fashioned in Hollywood with all of its secular kind of liberalizing tendencies and far removed from, yeah. Yes. (laughs) And of course, one of the things that they really object to is what McGuinness was talking about, about Eddie and Mabel, (laughs) the dating conventions in the romantic comedies coming from America are so profoundly culturally objectionable to Catholic bishops (laughs) (laughs) like all of this is just too mind-boggling and of course these men are like older even than William McGuinness they're all born in the 1850s like they're not young (laughs) and they've been in a very conservative institution since they were 17 so they're not really thinking modernity is the key so their vision of life in Ireland is one that cinema really is trying to undermine, in their opinion. They don't go as far as making it sound demonic, possibly because they don't want to give it the weight of seriousness that such rhetoric would Mm. confer upon it. But in their vision of Ireland, there would be like very sober cinema. The dancing would all be extremely straight-laced. Gambling would be almost non-existent. And if you read, you would only read religious tracts. So... It's a deeply serious and boring vision. (laughs) And I really feel for people that they had to endure this because it's one thing to object on a kind of moral front. But this like lack of joy is what they're looking for. It's so depressing. Yeah, pleasure in all its forms, inherently and deeply suspect. Yeah. And I mean, pleasure is... It's what Fallon identified in that quote, isn't it? All of that lush Well, yeah, it's the feeling. like... It's, it, <laughs> it's the fact that it's like, even the floor is so nice. Your feet sink into the floor and then your mind starts to open up to ideas. It's like... <laughs> you should be walking on bad hard floors. 
<laughs> more hair shirts. Don't be at more that. chains. <laughs> Comfy chairs. No. Jesus. No. <laughs> like, can we have some more flagellation, please? This is not acceptable. <laughs> it is easy to kind of monster the kind of overperformed conservatism of this period, but like it's a it's a rhetoric that they return to and return to and return to. <laughs> But also, I think sometimes when we laugh at it, it's then hard to remember that the cinema was so radical at this point. It is the cutting edge mass medium of the day. I mean, no wonder that they felt some need to regulate it. It's not surprising. But when they do finally pass the act, it's just one bloke gets to be appointed film censor and then a small board who hear the appeals. And I think it's worth just reading out the crucial section of the 1923 Act, because mm. this really this really is how censorship works for ages. I mean, it's not until the 70s that they start to kind of really twiddle with, with the bits. So what they're saying is that the censor certifies a film for exhibition in public. And that's crucial because if you don't get a certification, you can't legally show a film. He's allowed to ban it if a picture is unfit for general exhibition in public by reason of its being indecent, obscene or blasphemous or because the exhibition thereof in public would tend to inculcate principles contrary to public morality or would be otherwise subversive of public morality. But it's kind of generic as a list of bad things. I mean, indecent, obscene, blasphemous. But how would we define that a bit closely? I believe, Lloyd, you have an idea, kind of a version of yeah, censorship bingo. Yeah, so this is, yeah, with the intention of honouring the tradition of censorship bingo. A fine tradition that we should uphold. Yeah, I wanted to kind of dig out a kind of codified set of objectionable things. And the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America in what is a sort of early version of the Hayes Code. It's not, it hasn't been codified yet. They produce a list of don'ts and be carefuls from 1927, which as a, just as a heading is, is beautiful. They resolve this list, which comprises 11 don'ts and 25 be carefuls. So the 11 don'ts are, number one, pointed profanity by either title or lip. This includes the word God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless they be used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Hell, damn, God, spelled G-A-W-D, and every other <laughs> profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. So you can't even, you can't say these, you can't put them on screen as text, you can't have a character mouth them, because this is pre-sound cinema, I suppose. Any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. Number three, okay. the illegal traffic in drugs. Number four, any inference of sex perversion, which I'm assuming is queerness, right? I would think so. Number five is white slavery. Good old white slavery. <laughs> which is a whole moral panic all of its own yep. dating to the big... Victorian era. <laughs> Six, unsurprisingly for America of this period, but depressing nonetheless, miscegenation, sex relationships between the white and black races, as it is glossed. Seven, from interesting from my standpoint, sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Eight, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette. I love the idea of it in silhouette. Nine, children's sex organs. Ten, ridicule of the, ridicule of the clergy, unsurprisingly. 11, willful offence to any nation, race, or creed. So, yeah, the whole idea like of you know, depicting one. foreign heads of state or doing anything that might damage diplomatic relations is... 
a charged one in this period. Uh, I mean, that's quite fascinating that you can't be rude about other people's politics. <laughs> Which, yeah, leaves satire in quite a difficult plight. It does. So those are the don'ts, and they will probably serve as our kind of grinding principles. The be carefuls are legion and are quite interesting. <laughs> so the use of the flag... International relations, avoiding picturizing in any unfavorable light in other countries' religion, history, etc. So kind of the same thing. Arson, yeah. the use of firearms, theft, robbery, safe cracking, dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Specifically, and this is a telling qualification, they specify in parentheses, having in mind the effect which a too detailed description of these may have upon the moron. Which is being invoked there as a kind of medical term, I suppose, to denote someone with some kind of cognitive disability. But it's, uh, yeah, this this question of kind of imitative inspiration is to the fore there. But uh, I mean, cinema will lead you astray, really, especially if you are deemed to be yeah. weak minded. Absolutely. Brutality and possible gruesomeness gruesome technique i mean where does that leave horror that's a whole genre <laughs> well yeah no no yeah that post post to the code horror really suffers techniques of committing murder by whatever method methods of smuggling third degree methods i'm not quite sure what that yeah, is Yeah, third degree um actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime so you can fry people in real life, but you can't show them being fried. I mean, because it is a legal punishment for crime, so it's not like the other things which are illegal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I suppose that's actual hang. So they're, they're basically saying don't film executions. No snuff movies is what yeah. they're saying. Okay, Sympathy for enough. criminals, attitude toward public characters and institutions, sedition, apparent cruelty to children and animals, branding of people or animals, the sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue rape or attempted rape first night scenes which i think they mean like the consummation people of people getting married yeah. yeah man and woman in bed together <laughs> just sitting on the bed together yeah. deliberate Ouch. seduction of girls can be what about accidental seduction i don't know <laughs> the institution of marriage <laughs> just don't depict marriage or like be careful do avoid do not talk about marriage too openly because people might get the wrong idea about it <laughs> Absurd. <laughs> Surgical operations, the use of drugs, titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing officers. And coming in at number 25, excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a heavy, which is a type of sort of villainous character in a gangster pictures and what have you. So you're not allowed to show criminals as sexually attractive. Yeah, can't be can't be randy about about the criminals. <laughs> I mean, I particularly like number 12, attitude towards public characters and institutions. Attitude is unspecified. Yeah. It's just like you should not have an opinion on film. <laughs> Don't. Yeah. Like this is the thing, right? Obviously, I mean, these things are especially I think probably those be carefuls are, are, are honored more in the breach than in the observance. But like, what is there for film left to be about <laughs> yeah. like don't make it political don't make it about romance don't make it about violence don't make it about crime don't make it about international relations <laughs> like <laughs> where are all the genres going to go where's the detective story where's the police chase <laughs> i mean obviously what this 
ultimately, I suppose, breeds is a, a series of euphemisms that allow you to make clear to an audience that these things are occurring, but without the direct depiction of them. Which does, I suppose, come back to what McGinnis was saying about, well, even in something that notionally is prim and proper, there can be much that is that is not. Well, I am very much looking forward to the upcoming series where we go through the don'ts and be carefuls and try and rate <laughs> the various films. <laughs> I'm not sure by what means we'll disseminate it, but there is an image for our listeners to keep their eyes peeled for involving your dear hosts that plays on this. Yeah, I think people would really appreciate the effort we put in to honoring the spirit of the Hayes Code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for for the meantime, I will just say, Google "thou shalt not" Hayes Code for a little a little foretaste of that, <laughs> and for a, for a photo that is an absolute mood. Yes, yeah. <laughs> just, just a big mood. <laughs> yes, and it's a mood we hope to honor as we continue throughout the podcast. Really, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of don'ts, and <laughs> I mean, I hope we won't be too careful. Careful now. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.